Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology with me, Tiasha Zaitz. In 2023, in Silico Medicine, a biotech company developing medications with a heavy reliance on AI, used AI to develop an experimental drug for the incurable lung disease, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. The treatment is in mid-stage trials in the US and China, with some results expected in early 2025. Biotech is one of the fields that has been using generative AI years before ChatGPT brought the technology to the public view. Latest tech is essential in drug development. However, the convergence of digital health and pharma seems less clear. We've seen many ideas around how pharma should or could use digital health. Around 2015, when digital health apps started gaining popularity, it seemed that all pharma companies were trying to figure out how they could use digital health apps, so they financed accelerators, incubators, one after the other. In the last few years, we've seen many notorious cases where partnerships between tech companies and pharma failed. For example, a seeming unicorn, Proteus, that designed digital sensors-equipped pills, went bankrupt in 2019 after Otsuka Pharmaceuticals pulled out of a funding round. Peer Therapeutics, the guiding star in the digital therapeutic space, the leader in FDA-cleared prescription digital therapeutics partnered with Novartis, but in the end, the company filed for bankruptcy in 2023. So where is pharma in relation to digital health and digital therapeutics? This is the topic of today's episode, discussed with Amir Lahau, Digital Health Innovation Advisor for Pharma and MedTech from the U.S., we discussed where is pharma in relation to digitalization, AI and digital health. He shared his thoughts about the impact of AI on biotech, the state of decentralized clinical trials and potential of tech for improved drug development. Enjoy the show. And if you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast. And also check out our newsletter. You can find it at fodh.substack.com. That's fodh.substack.com. And if you will enjoy the show, please leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps spread the word about the show and helps others in the digital health space find the show as well. Now let's dive in. Amir, hi, and thank you so much for joining Faces of Digital Health for a discussion about biotech and AI, biotech and digital health. The two fields are converging a lot. They also differ a lot. I guess biotech is much more 
science-based and you as someone who's working very closely with pharma clients and with medtech companies as an advisor, as an expert, you know the trends, you are aware of what's happening in the field. I'm looking forward to your insights. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. I obviously need to start with AI because biotech is actually among the areas that have been in the AI space for the longest. And what I'm wondering as a warm-up question is, what are some of the groundbreaking things in 2023 that you saw? I see personally two trends uh, of the use uh, of artificial intelligence in biotech and pharma. The first one is has to do with the drug development process. We know that it takes sometimes eight to 10 years to bring drug to market. It's a really long time, especially when there are terminal diseases and people die and they wait for the drug. And most often than not, the drug is not getting approved. So a lot of those investments actually doesn't actually go very well. There is a huge trend in the industry now to develop drugs, not based on actual experiment in laboratories, but based on deep learning, machine learning, even the chemical ingredients and the pharmacokinetic of the drugs is being curated by an algorithm, by AI. We can shorten the time to deliver drug to market by almost half. It's going to be much cheaper and much faster to bring the drug to market. And that that is a huge trend that if it's really going to be adopted, we will see a huge difference. I don't know if we're going to see it, honestly, in 2024, but it's building up. And I know of at least several big pharma companies, including Pfizer, for example, that are using those techniques of advanced AI to develop new drugs and test them, which means from the algorithm right away to phase one or phase two. You don't actually have to go through the laboratory to in vitro, in vivo, animal, and all this kind of uh, process we usually see. That's a huge trend, and I'm really curious what the future stores for us when it comes to to something like that. Uh, I was just reading earlier that basically, maybe it's limited to oncology, but less than 4% of the drugs that enter phase one clinical trials ever get approved in the end. So that's 96% of the drugs don't make it past don't phase make, one. Right. So I think that's quite a significant number. It is. And that's a really good segue for maybe talking about another trend of using AI in the pharmaceutical industry. This has nothing to do with the process of drug development, but this has to do with the actual measurements that we take in a clinical trial to determine if the drug is effective or not, if the treatment group is significantly better than the control group. You mentioned a high percentage of clinical trials fail. One reason could be is, yeah, the drug, the compound is not working, right? The mechanism of action sucks. It doesn't work. So we have to think, rethink. But there is also a very good possibility in some cases that the drug is actually perfectly fine. The measurements suck. We are looking to measure an improvement in someone's health. But the resolution and the tools that we use to measure it are not good enough. Sometimes we measure it, for example, only at the hospital. We bring the patients to the hospital 
And we assume, say, this is like a 12-month clinical trial. The patients come at baseline, three months, six months, nine months, 12 months. So what you get eventually is snapshots, snapshots of what the patient is feeling, whatever, the, whatever you measure in the clinic, it doesn't matter. But think about it. The real health conditions of a patient is not a snapshot. It's a continuous, and there are a lot of changes that happen between those study visits, between baseline to three months, between three months to six months. We're not there. We're not there to measure if actually something good happened. I've seen many trials where patients come to the clinic and he had a really bad day or he didn't sleep well the night before. And that affects a lot of the measurements and you get biased measurements that are not representative of what the patient is really feeling. If we were home with the patients where the most of the health changes actually occur and we were there using wearable devices, using passive sensors, using clinical surveillance technology at the home environment, including even smartphones and mobile apps that can measure voice and motion and video and a lot of things that can be analyzed by artificial intelligence. When you deal with the data that is captured in the clinic, between us, this is not a very complicated data. Say you came to the clinic to draw blood, or to get an MRI, it's very straightforward. You get the results. But when you deal with data that is continuously measured throughout the 12-month period of the trial, you get to that niche of AI that is beyond human, uh, uh, beyond the human ability to analyze. You get to huge amount of data. And even if you look at the data, you're like, what the heck? I, I don't know what to do with it. I need an algorithm. I need something. I need a seeing eye dog to help me because I get blind by seeing so many numbers. And this is where AI can help with analyzing continuous data or more frequent data. It doesn't have to be continuous. Then that is collected in clinical trials, not just during the traditional study visits. What that data is going to do, it will increase the power to the point that you don't need so many patients in a clinical trials to show a significant difference between the treatment group and the control group because you have almost 100 times more data point. If you don't need so many patients, it means the time that takes to do the trial is much shorter Maybe the budget is all obviously lower, but most importantly, you get the resolution that you need in order to capture changes in somebody's health. I can give you an example if you want from oncology. I'll ask you a question, actually, if that's okay. From your knowledge, in oncology trials, and oncology is not my, I'm in the neuromuscular rare disease, but in oncology trials, what is the most common primary endpoint in a clinical trial that, that that we measure? I actually don't know. You don't know? No. Uh, if you, you know. So there are usually two, two that are most common, very intuitive. One is tumor size. We give one group of patients a drug. The other one gets placebo. We measure the tumor size. If the tumor has shrunk, Generally a good thing in medicine. The other thing we measure is survival. Those people tend to die. If our drug can give them, 
I don't know, 18 more months of life? Maybe for you and me, it's nothing. But for them, these are 18 more months of memories with their families. And that's, that could be important. And drugs get approved for that. The point that I'm trying to make is that there are so many oncology trials where the drug was approved because the clinical trial results showed that the tumor was much smaller in the treatment group. But at the end of the day, if you ask the patients, how do you feel? How do you feel? They say, not good. I feel like my life is in hell. I still have no energy. I don't want to get out of the house. My fatigue level is incredible. I have headaches. Yes, the tumor has shrunk, but the patient doesn't feel good. So... I'm asking FDA in this case, what is really the whole idea of a clinical trial? Is it to prove that the drug is effective, that the mechanism of action is working? Okay, if that's the goal, yes, that's perfect. But that's not a goal. The goal is to prove that the treatment is effective. It doesn't matter if the primary, if the clinical trial met the primary endpoint. It matters at the end of the day how the patient feels. How does that have to do with AI? It has to do with all these measurements that I was referring before with wearable devices, for example, with smartphone apps that you can measure continuously at home. Without those measurements, you will not know if the patient is actually feeling good or bad. There's definitely been a lot of progress made in terms of the patient-reported outcomes, how you actually collect them, and while the survival rate for many cancers hasn't really improved, like the quality of life with new drugs has, and that's basically the biggest impact that I've seen in drug development. So the quality of life of patients that improve. So it's not just about survival, it's also about actually having a life, as you were describing. Exactly. The the fact that we should focus on quality of life, that's not the innovative part. That FDA is, is aware of that. The innovative part is patient reported outcome, subjective reports of patient being asked by a questionnaire, how did you feel over the last two weeks? And I need to think, how did I feel over the last two weeks? And I rated, okay, seven years from 10, zero to 10, I put five. This is not a quantitative, objective measure of health. This is a very subjective evaluation of uh, sick patients who are is given some rating. People have very different pain threshold and, and, and a, a, a lot of biases, right? It's almost embarrassing to me that in 2024, we decide whether a drug is effective or not simply based on this subjective measurement. Whether you have equipment with sensors that you can measure fatigue in a very precise way, in a very objective way, that, in my opinion, is the innovative part that we need to see more in clinical trials. I see trend. I see pharma companies are deploying more and more measurements like that, continuous, more frequent measurements that needs AI and machine learning to be analyzed in order to make those patient-reported outcome more more stronger, and and we can build trust in those measurements as opposed to just subjective questions. You talked a lot about innovative approaches to measuring various 
patient data related to treatments. And we've been talking about remote or virtual or at-home clinical trials for years. And what you were describing is the regular setting in the hospital. So what I really wonder is how much do you see that virtual clinical trials are already used? Because I still am hearing a lot of the same problems in drug development, in clinical trial design, in patient recruitment and challenges related to that. I, I think that the concept of virtual clinical trials, decentralized clinical trials. Thanks, uh, it, yeah. I was looking for that term. <laughs> yeah. People have, I think, used that too much of a buzzword. Uh, to be honest, every clinical trial should have decentralized elements, should have, should include more data that is being collected virtually at the home environment in order to capture the reality of the patients and not just snapshot in the clinic. Yes, there are a lot of advantages to, to do remote clinical trial or decentralized, but I'm not suggesting that drug trials should be completely virtual. There are things that you cannot ship an MRI machine to the home environment, right? You will, you will not send somebody to do muscle biopsy at the home. There are things that needs to be at the hospital. Sometimes the drug delivery itself needs to be at the hospital. So decentralization is more of a mindset that should uh, be adapted by pharmaceutical companies when they design the protocol to enrich the measurement and include more measurement at home and allow patients, if possible, to do things remotely without bringing them to the clinic if it's absolutely unnecessary. That's at least my perspective on the decentralized uh, trial. If you look at uh, the convergence of digital health and pharma uh, more broadly, I still remember in 2015-16 here in in Europe, like in Germany, there were so many accelerators after basically Bayer's uh, Grants for Apps was established. It seemed that every pharma company wanted to have an accelerator and it also wasn't quite clear what exactly do they want to do. With digital health app, they supported some companies. And then in the following years, some accelerators became more targeted. And they basically, the pharma companies chose specific areas that they were researching and were looking for startups that were developing specific solutions for those therapeutic areas. So where do you see that pharma is today in relation to digital health? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting perspective that you bring. You're absolutely right. The digital health surged around this time in 20, 2014, 2015, 2016. And a lot of farmers, it was almost like a mini pandemic of digital health, if you want, to the point that I think it was done in many ways without much strategy. That resulted in a lot of companies developing accelerators, developing shark tanks, developing a center for excellence in digital health. It became to the point that a lot of big pharma had so many people with digital in their titles that you, even they, within the company, they didn't know what the other person is doing. There was so many duplicative efforts and inefficiencies and the need to digitize or digitize the way pharma behaves, that becomes like almost a mission, but the strategy was not there. 
And that resulted in a lot of crashes. We saw many crashes in Novartis a couple of years ago, recently at Biogen, uh, Pfizer shutting down some of those big kingdom that they build for digital health. And now they're scaling down after realizing, you know what, maybe we need to strategize this a little bit better and see what what works and what doesn't work and how we use our uh, resources more more thoughtfully. Yes, we can develop an app that will be a companion app for this, this new drug. Before that, people do it because it was sexy, it was attractive, mm-hmm. it was cool, it was new. Maybe even it could uh, increase adherence and patients would want to use the Pfizer drug because it comes with an app and they will prefer that over a drug from Bayer. But now it's not a big deal. I think pharmaceutical industry realized that technology is there, but without the stickiness, without engagement properties that are are built in very wisely into those apps, patients will download them, but will not use them. Mm. And without analytical, very sophisticated analytical infrastructures that needs to be in the back end to analyze the data that is collected by those apps. If you don't have that, you basically build a house without foundation. And this is where I see a lot of people coming back to this sort of smaller team strategy, in a way, learning from their own mistakes. What are some of the things that you found perhaps inspiring or good use cases in terms of the the digital health strategies that you see in pharma because i think like the whole fact that pharma is scaling down with the um, examples that you mentioned biogen closed their digital health section last year in 2023 we have also various other examples of pharma supporting digital health companies that either went bankrupt or just somebody pulled the plug And that's discouraging for the digital health industry because the demands for clinical trials, for evidence that you need for something digital to be approved is rising. And the money that you need to actually bring all that together is really hard to get. And pharma is an industry that actually has that capital to be able to support endeavors such as data gathering and clinical trials on top of having a lot of experiences in how do you actually conduct a clinical trial that a startup might not even have. So what do you see that the whole kind of boiling down of the excitement, let's call it like that, will do to digital health? I see it very differently. I don't think that there is a lack of interest or some sort of something that impede on this excitement and and mission. The scaling down does not reflect the lack of interest or importance. It simply means, in my opinion, efficiency. I'm in touch with a lot of pharmaceutical companies that I'm either advising to or uh, sometimes have uh, advisory board position with, with tech companies that sell to pharma. I don't see any anything close to lack of interest. What I see is that they have smaller teams that are more strategically moving the needle in order to make it right. The Biogen shutting down the digital health does not reflect, in my opinion, any trend in the industry because I see so many clinical trials, in fact, 
deploying digital health technologies. I see FDA. I remember when I, in 2015, I remember FDA questioned a study protocol that in, in, in neuromuscular disease that included a wearable device to measure stride lengths and stride velocity to see if it's a neurodegenerative disease. It was Duchenne muscular dystrophy. FDA questioned, why, what the heck? Why do we need it? Now, in 2024, 2023, if you design a study for Duchenne muscular dystrophy and you want to measure disease progression and you do not include a wearable device, FDA will question it. Mm. So I, I think even at the regulatory level, we see so many guidelines. Yes, sometimes those guidelines are a little vague and there's some confusion. And we do fly the plan as we build it. There, there's a lot of learning, but I really think this is more efficiencies and not a reflection of the field being going the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Digital therapeutics is a totally different area. If you referred before to bankrupt or a company that had to shut down like air therapeutic, that is a different category. Digital therapeutics has its own opportunities and challenges. But if we just talk about digital health technologies in healthcare or in clinical trials and the use of AI, I see it booming and not wilting. Yeah, I was just thinking that maybe the general expectation is too high in terms of how many solutions need to succeed, which brings us back to those less than 4% of drugs that actually go from being eligible to start the phase one clinical trial and actually getting the FDA approval. Maybe we just have to expect a similar metrics in digital health. Mm-hmm. I, you asked a really important question before. What trends do I see with these new smaller teams uh, of digital health across the industry. And I, I can tell you what, what I see. Part of it is what I try to bring to a, a pharmaceutical team when I talk to them and I've been a thought partner to help them decide how to improve the digital measurements in their trial to, to improve and increase likelihood to, to prove efficacy in the trial. The first one, the first trend, people in the digital health industry are collaborating across the pharmaceutical industry, share knowledge in a non-competitive fashion. I've personally participated in several forums like that last year where people coming from all the pharmaceutical companies sitting together and talk about what failed and why. And they want that these lessons were learned so we don't burden patients again. We don't share the secrets of how to develop the compound of the drug. This remains completely separate, but we do share a lot about the methods, the analytical methods, the digital technologies, the how the logistic, how to deploy it. I see a huge trend about companies not being afraid to share what didn't work. The other thing that I see, and, and maybe I don't see it much, but I'd like to see it. This has to do with airplanes and long runways. We talked about how it takes about almost 10 years to to bring drugs to market. That's a long run. It means that somebody at the company leadership is willing to put his hand deep in the pocket, commit to a huge budget, a long-term view, and during this 10-year period, 
we expect to fail several times, but eventually we'll make it. My experience with digital health is that the leadership in the pharmaceutical industry, the executive leadership, they don't have such patience for digital health solutions. They don't have long runway. They can give you a year or two years. Show me that it works. If it doesn't work, okay, budget is cut, goodbye. And I think this is something that I'd like to see being changed so that those leadership understand that it takes several more years. And the way to do it, at least the way I recommend pharma companies to do it, you have a phase zero, you have a phase one. These are amazing opportunities to piggyback on those opportunities to pilot some of your digital health solutions. Say you have an app that measures cognitive function and you have a clinical trial in Alzheimer's. You don't know how this app that measures cognitive function is going to work. Is it going to be validated? Is it going? Will you use it in phase three? Okay, don't wait to phase three. Use it in the very early phases to pilot it. So you have an opportunity to fix things, to change things, to build trust in that product so that when it graduates to that phase three trial, phase four, you have a digital solution that really went through the process of of validation and and you get what you want or no. You have an opportunity to have a go, no go decision. What inspires you most in terms of the progress that has been made in pharma, in biotech, either related to the science and scientific progress and related to technology, big data, secondary use of data and AI. I think that one of the most common things that I hear pharma discussing is uh, precision medicine, the increase in targeted therapies, the hope that basically you're going to get the exactly appropriate drug for your specific condition, genetic variation, etc. So there's no shortage of ideas about the possibilities, but the actual progress is uh, is uh, somewhere else. So I wonder what's your perspective on where it is, like where precision medicine is. Two things inspire me, or I, look, I would say I look forward to see how it, it evolves. I'm really curious to see. One has to do with the actual development of the drug. The fact that you and I may have the same disease, but the AI algorithm will create, curate a different drug for each of us. Remember, even drugs that are approved by FDA, they are based on results of a clinical trial. Not every patient in the clinical trial behave the same. There are significant amount of patients in the clinical trial. That drug didn't actually work on them. It's just that the majority of the patients, it worked, so that's why the drug is approved. But AI can benefit us by answering the question of why it didn't work for those individuals in the clinical trials. What do we need to change in the formula of this drug to make it workable for everybody so it's effective? And that curation in the individualized precision medicine, this is something that I'm super excited about and hopefully that will, maybe not in my lifetime, but maybe a little later. The other thing that I'm really excited about precision medicine is not about just about the drug itself, but the way it is administered 
and the holistic view of managing yourself and manage your disease. AI that guides you in every aspect of your life in real time and give you feedback can really help you live better, make smarter choices, and you almost have virtual friends that, that guide you, invisible friends that guide you how to manage your life and manage your disease. A field that's also developing quite a lot in relation to medications and pharma is pharmacogenomics. But I don't really often hear that genomics would be tied into clinical trials. I do see it, though, in the mental health psychiatry space. We all know about about depression and other more advanced diseases like schizophrenia. And and post-COVID, a lot of people talk about depression much more openly because it becomes like a second pandemic. They are not afraid to say, I'm taking antidepressants. But... If you ever take an antidepressant, you know that those psychiatrists are not magicians. They use a lot of trial and error. Try this, maybe try this combination. They send you home with different options. You come back and you are your own doctor. You tell them how you feel. That's exactly why in psychiatry, they develop this genetic profiling that you can go through that uh, step and it will tell you which drugs are more likely to be uh, effective on you. Not everybody mm. does it because it's obviously not reimbursable by insurance at, at this point. But I think that it should because it will minimize the trial and error to the minimum possible. And people can start feeling better much, much quicker, not taking, putting chemicals in their body that there's no chance that they're going to help them anyway. I haven't seen it much in others, but I might just not know Enough, yeah, 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 yeah. Even though we already have an existing uh, knowledge about pharmacogenomics, there's still a lot that's not uh, covered, and in a way, I'm surprised that there's no that there's not more research related to pharmacogenomics that would automatically be included in clinical trials. Even when you're very picky with the patients that you include in clinical trials, that you would also add that component, not as a as a research criteria, but just as a research component, a way of getting to know the patients that you chose more specifically, so you would know more about the genetic makeup of the patients that potentially didn't respond to the treatment. Does that make sense? I think we're not utilizing the potential of this genetic uh, profiling and genetic uh, data. There is so much data that is collected in clinical trials, but it stays within the clinical trial context, whether if we had access, if we can monetize and, and expand this data and put all of that in one bucket and let those deep learning algorithms uh, give us some insights, we will know much more than the existing data that we have. Is that, is that your point? Sort of. Not quite. <laughs> Not quite, but it's a, I'm glad we're having this conversation. When it comes to genetic testing, you will hear it's getting cheaper, it's getting more affordable, more people can get it, but it's still not utilized for clinical trials. Why is not like why is genetic testing not automatically included in clinical trials? So you would expand the field of pharmacogenomics because you would now know more about the drugs and the the genetics right, right, of patients. Right. I get it. So genetic profiling 
should become part of every clinical trial database because this is the only way we can draw empirical connections between the treatment effect and this uh, genetic data, right? And we can learn so next time we do a better job or have a better inclusion-exclusion criteria of patients in the clinical trial and not waste patients' time if we know they have no choice to benefit from this trial. You're right, it is not part of every clinical trial, and that is probably a cost issue, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. What do you anticipate most in 2024 and beyond in terms of the future development of biotech and medtech? Biotech and medtech, pharma and medtech are are very different worlds. That's what I, I can tell you. Pharma is slow. They have a lot of SOPs. They are risk averse. They're all about innovation as long as you don't change it. But medtech is fast, is agile, is, is sometimes overselling. They want to look for shortcut. They look for business opportunities. Sometimes I feel like these are big two mountains, the pharma mountain and the medtech mountain. There's a lot of ego sometimes at the top of the mountain. And in the middle, between these two mountains, like in nature, there's a valley. And I call this valley the valley of misopportunities. There are a lot of really cool and innovative solutions that could really bring value to patients and help patients feel better that are end up in this valley because of lack of communication between these two worlds that are so different. I think we need to do a better job teaching medtech how to talk to pharma, teaching pharma how to work with medtech. So that valley will only have some water stream and not miss opportunities. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health, a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast, subscribe to the show, or follow us on LinkedIn. Additionally, check out our newsletter, You can find it at fodh.substack.com. That's fodh.substack.com. Stay tuned.